And that's exactly. We're not taking that out. This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today on the show, it's infrastructure again. <laughs> Our guest is Arpit Gupta. Arpit is an assistant professor in finance at NYU Stern School of Business. He has a recent working paper with Stein van Neuerberg and Konstantin Kontakosta called Take the Q-Train, Value Capture of Public Infrastructure Projects. The paper analyzes the benefits of the Second Avenue subway extension in New York City. Welcome, Arpit. Thanks so much, Jeff and Greg. Big fan of the podcast. Yeah, great to have you. And joining us also to discuss the paper is Christopher Severin. Chris is a senior economist at the Philadelphia Fed. Chris is also the author of a recent paper called Commuting, Labor, and Housing Market Effects of Mass Transportation, which evaluates the welfare effects of the LA Metro. Chris also has a companion piece called A Ticket to Ride, Estimating the Costs and Benefits of Rail Transit which appeared in Economic Insights earlier this year. Welcome, Chris. Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad too, especially given your work in this area, Chris. So Arpit, let's start with your paper. The second Avenue subway extension has been notoriously expensive. Your paper puts the cost at about $4.5 billion. Given the expense, it's important to have a good estimate of the benefits of new transit. Can you walk us through how do we get a good estimate? of these benefits? Yeah, that's a great question. So we are kind of adopting a capitalization approach in the paper, which is that we think that there are going to be a lot of different varied benefits here, right? So that's going to include improved access to commuting options. It's going to include things like possibly safer streets because there's less driving. There are a lot of different benefits, less noise, less pollution potentially that arise from having mass transit in cities. They're really as essential for a city like New York as a elevator is for a skyscraper, right? So our capitalization approach kind of starts from the premise that all of these varied benefits should be priced amenities. So people who are purchasing real estate assets should take into account the improved benefits for the location that arise from the transit improvement. And that should be reflected ultimately in the price of local real estate properties. And so we can use changes in those prices to assess how the market is basically putting a value on all those varied benefits. Right. You know, this is going to be a very familiar point of view to urban economists, which is that a lot of these amenities are going to get capitalized into land prices. So you guys are going to look at how housing prices respond in the wake of the construction of the Second Avenue subway. What we need is a counterfactual, right? What would have happened to these places absent the Second Avenue subway construction? So what are you guys going to do there? So we're going to take a basic difference in difference approach in which we look at a series of treatment properties that are going to be very close to station stops that are affected by the Second Avenue subway construction and compare them to a control group of properties that are going to also be on the Upper East Side. So are going to share a lot of similar characteristics as properties that are directly treated, but are going to be less immediately affected by the new subway construction just because they're a little bit further away and less directly affected. They're already served by other subway lines. And so our key assumption is that those treatment and control areas 
while they may still differ on average, are at least going to follow parallel trends, right? So we think that absent the subway's construction, we can use the broader price trends in these control properties on other parts of the Upper East Side as our estimate for the counterfactual of how price trends would have evolved absent the subway's construction. So one thing that I've mentioned to you in the past about this paper, and I think is relevant for thinking about the welfare benefits of the subway, is to what extent this comparison of near versus far properties, whether this comparison captures aggregate growth effects, that is, you're improving the welfare of New York City, versus reorganization effects, that is, you're making some places nicer, but just at the expenses of other places. How should we think about that in the context of what we're estimating? So you're right that we are estimating these local effects. And so we are kind of abstracting a little bit from some of the general equilibrium consequences of this network expansion on the city at large. Now, in the context of this particular line, we think that's a reasonable assumption because it's not like this line was really cross-cutting across the city, affecting a lot of the different neighborhoods. In terms of the network structure of the subway overall, you can kind of think of this as one line kind of jutting out from the center of the transportation network, allowing a previously underserved area to access greater transit opportunities. So in that sense, we think that that allows us to measure these local price effects, which we find are kind of narrowing the price gap between these underserved areas relative to the rest of the Upper East Side. But we think that we're not fully able to measure the broader general equilibrium benefits that subway construction has on New York City overall. This seems like a good time to ask Chris to jump in here. Chris, in your recent work, you've been working on similar questions, for example, with the LA Metro. And I think in your analysis, you do dive into some of the general equilibrium effects. And I wonder, in your application studying the LA Metro, what did you learn about comparing sort of these reduced form effects versus a more GE approach? Well, I think that there are a couple of things to differentiate about these studies. So first, in ARPIT study, there's a large subway system that has a relatively small expansion to the existing subway system, which will account for a relatively small portion of the overall ridership. So there probably are some general equilibrium effects in that setting, but they're likely relatively small, I would imagine. In the context of LA, the study was a little bit different. So I was comparing basically Los Angeles in 1990, uh, before their subway system was built, uh, to Los Angeles in 2000, and a little bit even later, where the subway system had four lines, three and a half lines by 2000, and some 45 or 46 stations. And so that's a relatively large intervention that has the potential to shift the way the city looks a lot. Now, in the context of Los Angeles, the general equilibrium effects weren't actually that different from these very local effects to the best that I could tell with the data that I had. And that was largely due to relatively limited uptake of the Los Angeles metro among commuters in Los Angeles as a whole. And that's probably due to a lot of factors that make Los Angeles a bit different from New York City to begin with, notably the automobile-oriented history and that predominant use of automobile as a mode of transport. Right. So the scale of the intervention here is in some sense important for thinking about what kind of tools we should use to evaluate these benefits. That's good. 
I think that's also a good segue into thinking about estimating these benefits through other channels. And that's one thing that Arpit does in his paper, right? So one thing that we do is try to measure the commuting gains that result from the subway, right? And so there are a lot of ways this has been estimated in the literature previously, looking at, for instance, things like surveys that estimate how often people use subway ridership. What we're able to do in this paper is use mobile phone data that's provided by a company called Venpath, which allows us to directly measure the commuting trajectories that people take as they go to work every day. And this allows us to estimate the ways in which people are actually changing their commutes in the aftermath of subway construction. And we find that people are able to reduce their commute lengths by three to five minutes on average. And this increase is particularly large for subway riders. And this allows for us to measure kind of this large gain of the subway construction on transit times for commuting. So I actually lived in the treatment area during the large majority of the time that the subway was under construction. So I have, I guess, a personal interest as well as an academic interest in the paper. A couple of things about the focus on commutes, a couple of questions I want to bring out. So one is, it seems to me that the major benefit from the standpoint of someone who lives in that area on the Upper East Side, in your treatment area, if I'm recalling, is something like 59th Street to 100th Street from, well, there are different treatment areas that you identify, but we're basically talking about 59th to 100th between a couple of avenues over on either side of 2nd. And folks can look in the paper for the, I think there are four different treatment areas that they look at. But it newly became possible to live on the Upper East Side and have a convenient one-seat ride to Midtown West, Times Square area, or the businesses in the 40s and 50s, kind of southwest of Central Park. And that previously would have been a real pain to do from the Bree side. And now it got easier. And that seems to have unlocked some some value. I'm wondering, did you also have occasion, Arpit, to look at impacts in the other direction? So, for example, folks commuting to the Upper East Side from neighborhoods that were served by the queue and how that may have affected their welfare. We didn't seem to find much evidence for that. I think especially because the area on the Upper East Side doesn't have a lot of office located nearby. So the bulk of the commuting is residents who live there who are moving out. One thing we were able to do is look at changing patterns of commutes for people that moved in the area before and after the subway construction, right? And so we found that new residents, people that moved into the area, were more likely to use the subway, indicating that this was likely an important amenity that they were looking at when deciding whether or not to live in the area. I think that makes good sense. The one job cluster that leaps to mind on the Upper East Side is the hospital system on the East River, but that's actually fairly close to a number of the subway lines that already existed and served a variety of neighborhoods. So I suppose it's not surprising that there wasn't much effect there. The cell phone analysis is a pretty important part of the paper for kind of quantifying these time savings. So that's an important piece of the collage of evidence, I think, in that paper. It also makes your paper like one of the a notable entry in the sort of the new wave of paper in urban and regional economics using location tracking data to keep track of all of these trips and potential interactions that people are having at a very high spatial and temporal frequency. It seems like this new source of data is going to be a really important foundation for research in the next several years. I'm interested as having worked with these data, what's not apparent 
to outside researchers? What were some surprises and what were some challenges in using these data? So I would say that there is pretty high entry cost for working with data of this scale. So we are working with very large ping level data. So think of that as a pair of a geolocation coordinate and timestamp that corresponds to when a person was in a particular area. And this is pretty unstructured data. So you just have a large number of these pings that you have to then figure out a way to organize and clean and structure in some way. Another challenge is it's not entirely obvious what economic questions you can answer from location data alone. Now, in the course of the COVID pandemic, there has been an enormous quantity of work which uses location data to answer really important questions because just the location itself is really important for a lot of questions. But in ordinary times, it can be a little bit of a challenge to think about how location as a measurement by itself is a really important variable. And in the context of our study, commuting was one case in which just knowing the location, just knowing what people were doing physically was an important variable that we wanted to capture. Did you consider maybe trying to use these data to measure how consumption opportunities might have changed or how retailers serving people who might have been traveling on the subway might have benefited? So we haven't looked at consumption data more directly. I think we've talked a lot about looking at things like Yelp data or card spending data in the area, but we decided to focus primarily on the real estate application because that was our main focus in understanding the trends in value for businesses in the area and for for residents in the area. But one thing that's a little off topic, but one thing that I kind of find really interesting about understanding is how many retailers don't really seem to have a great idea of where their customers are actually coming from, right? So you see this in New York City with a lot of these busway pyramids that the local pizza owners will say, oh, this busway is really bad because my customers are actually driving here. And it's pretty clear that that's not how customers are actually getting to a pizza joint on 14th Street. But there seems to be this misperception on the part of business owners with that regard. That's a pretty interesting phenomenon. I wonder if Greg has anything to say about that. It's something I've seen in many contexts. I think it's a ultimately a hard political puzzle to crack because What's very often the case is a small business owner will drive to and from, let's say, the dry cleaners that they own and park and will really appreciate the ability to drive, especially for transporting goods related for work, and won't have necessarily a nuanced appreciation of where their customers are coming from. And so it ends up becoming a political nut to crack, and I haven't seen an off-the-shelf chisel for that, but it's certainly interesting. Let's turn to the housing price analysis. So again, we're comparing prices for properties for apartments close to the new subway stops versus properties that are a little bit farther away, but still on the Upper East Side. And we're looking before and after the opening of the subway. So what did you guys find was the effect on, on housing prices? So we have a few different treatment variables. Our primary sample is looking at properties just in the Avenue corridor around 2nd Avenue, looking after 2013 or so. So the subway will open itself on January 2017, but we allow for a few years of anticipation effects, and we're comparing these price trends 
for those properties relative to properties in our control area, other properties on the Upper East Side, and relative to control period of 2006 and prior. So that accommodates for the construction effect that Greg was talking about because we are allowing that period to have a different price trajectory relative to what's going on after 2013 or so when the construction really seemed much more imminent. And we use a variety of specifications. We start with a basic hedonic model where we include a lot of controls for property attributes and try to understand the price trends going on with this treatment group in the post-2013 period and find that prices going up somewhere between 4 and 10%, depending on our specification. So one of the coolest things about this paper is that Arput and his co-authors are able to base their hedonic estimates, these real estate price changes, in how people are changing their commuting behavior. And that's what's really cool about the cell phone data. If you look at the history of analyzing public transit or urban rapid transit interventions, there are kind of two strands of literature. There's the engineering literature, which is basically calculated that people will save X minutes if you install some sort of big public transit, a rail or something like that. And then there's the hedonic literature, which has said, you know, we can measure this stuff from price changes. But there's been a little bit of a black box in understanding what these hedonic price changes are measuring. So there's a commuting effect, which could be driven by people changing where they're going and how they're consuming goods spatially in the city. But there could also be these other effects, these add-on effects of local amenities or local productivity advantages that are going on. And in Arput's paper, they're able to nicely separate this commuting benefit using the cell phone data and tracking how people change. And I think that that's one of the really cool things about this paper is that it kind of puts this entire literature of hedonic valuation of public transit in context and says, hey, there likely is some sort of a real commuting benefit here. It's not just that there's local investment from the government, which is going to make it a nicer place to live and therefore make people want to live there more. And my work in Los Angeles also kind of mirrors that. And then I find a substantial commuting benefit from rail transit. And so I think with this kind of pair of studies, we see that there are these big commuting-related benefits from transit. And so we don't have to be worried about the sort of additionality or leakage to other channels. Yeah, that was a really concise description, Chris. And just to follow up on that, we estimate that every one-minute reduction in the commuting time raises house prices by something between $14,000 and $28,000, right? So that tells us that there is this really important complementarity between infrastructure improvements and real estate valuations. And what's really interesting is that when we look at the broader house price gradient in New York City, that actually lines up with those estimates. So if I look at how much house prices change for every minute further that I go north on the Metro North line, there's also a gradient of something like ten to $20,000 by which every additional minute will lower the house price by that amount. And that tells us that being able to reduce these commuting times has a large impact on the valuation of these properties. So can you actually use that to kind of explain a little bit maybe the history of prices in along the Second Avenue? So when you just look at the summary statistics in your paper, and for people who have lived there, you know this, housing prices along Second Avenue are a bit lower than as you move towards Central Park and along Lexington Avenue. So does that kind of explain this history? I think that's right. So the further you go away from the commuting lines on the Upper East Side, 
you have a big drop in price, and we find that a large chunk of that price valuation gap does reverse after the construction of the subway itself, telling us that part of what's going on here is that access to commuting is just a really important priced characteristic of real estate properties. And that's really what's being affected by the new subway line construction. Chris, I wanted to follow up on your comment a while back. I think you made a really interesting distinction between engineering estimates of benefits of transportation infrastructure versus economic estimates of the benefits of transit infrastructure. And so like an engineering estimate might emphasize things like throughput or number of people per unit time or the time between point A and point B. Whereas an economist would also think about, okay, how do these changes to transportation infrastructure affect welfare on other margins? Maybe this is a question for Greg, but my impression is that historically policymaking has focused a lot on evidence of the former variety, that is these engineering benefit estimates. To what extent has economic analysis considering these other margins that are affecting welfare, how effective has that been in the policymaking process? You know, it's a big question. I hesitate to offer a blanket response, but I can say that among transportation economists in the latter part of the 20th century who were writing the studies that became the foundation of a lot of highway projects, they really looked very narrowly at commute times. And of course, there were a lot of assumptions even baked into the commute time analysis. For example, they typically did not make their models dynamic, so they didn't assume induced demand. But even beyond that, in other words, outside the model, they excluded all kinds of negative externalities like pollution. Some of these weren't that well understood. They were maybe understood as disamenities, but not as causes of cancer and brain malfunction and so on. But the short answer is most of the transportation modeling that I've seen with respect to highways is created in order to produce a particular answer. And of course, this isn't unique to highways. The LaGuardia air train, for example, which is the pet project of the governor of New York, has a bunch of assumptions built into the modeling that make really any other solution impossible. And so it's designed to produce this backwards train that doesn't actually go towards Manhattan and requires you to then change for another means of transportation. So I think the modeling is pretty busted. I mean, just to give one example, there's a lawsuit that I've mentioned previously as an appendix brought by people in New York City who are visually impaired and can't cross the street. And so many of them just stay at home like literally all or almost all the time because they fear for their lives venturing outside. So that's a welfare effect that a, an objective or academic-minded economist or a good-faith policymaker would want to build into their model, but you won't find it in any models. Arpit, I wondered if you could help with a clarifying question. So your paper deals with the effects on commute times to residents of the treatment area. So let's posit four people who live in two neighborhoods before the intervention of the subway. We'll say that two of these people live in the treatment area prior to the treatment, and one of those people works at home, and the other one is retired, so they're not earning income. And then the other two people work, but they work outside the treatment area, so they're out of sample. Now there's the subway, we have the treatment, and the people who were out of sample come in 
And for whatever reason, they move into the area and the other two people who had lived there leave. And the two people who are there now, the new people, they use the queue to go to Midtown West. And so how does the analysis avoid the impression that average commuting time has increased? Of course, average commuting time among those people has increased, but that's not really giving us the answer we want, I don't think. So just wondered if you could speak to how you address that. Absolutely. So I earlier talked about analysis that is related to what you're saying, because we do observe some of the new people that move into the area are more likely to use the subway to commute. And so in our main commuting estimates, what we are able to do is include fixed effects for the person looking in a narrow window before and after the subway construction, allowing us to estimate the within-person commuting chain and find similar effects there, suggesting that there is a genuine change in commuting times for people that are always resident in the neighborhood. But I think you're right that over the long term, and Jeff raised this issue as well, we would expect to see compositional effects in the neighborhood because there are new opportunities opened up by the subway's construction. And we have a fairly short sample at this point since the subway's construction, but we'd be interested to look forward and see how these neighborhood composition effects change over time. I want to talk about the back half of the paper because this is the two most interesting parts of the paper, for me at least. (laughs) The first thing I want to talk about is your analysis and thinking about where these price increases are coming from. And it's very much a finance story, I think. But can you talk a little bit about what you're doing and what you're finding? Right. So what we wanted to do was find ways of decomposing whether the value increase was coming from a cash flow channel or a discount rate channel. And it's a very common move among finance people. We want to understand whether changes in valuations reflect increases in some sort of leasing revenue, cash flow measure, or whether it's actually about changes in the perception of risk about an asset. And we find evidence for both channels. So what we're able to do in our context is measure rental income, So this allows us to see whether rents are also going up in the area in the vicinity around the subway stops. We find that they are. However, prices are going up by even more. And so common way for us to interpret that as real estate finance people is that we think that this project is really lowering the discount rate on local real estate projects because the valuation ratios are improving for the properties in the area. So the infrastructure is in some sense lowering the riskiness of these investments. And that tells us that there are these important knock-on effects by which these infrastructure projects can contribute to real estate valuation through both the cash flow as well as the discount rate channel. Right, right. My own kind of spin on this was that basically the subway, you're creating this fixed, durable amenity that's going to last for a really, really long time. And that's going to make sure that in the future, this neighborhood is going to continue to have good access, good amenity values. And so by looking at what rents are doing versus what prices are doing, you're going to attribute part of that price increases to that sort of permanent change in the amenity value of that neighborhood. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. I think you had also raised this issue, Jeff, about there being some sort of risk in the unraveling of the neighborhood that might happen and ensuring this long-term durable amenity also stabilizes the neighborhood in some sense, which is also positive for the valuation of properties. So I think that that's a really interesting point. And you actually hear about this often when you 
read transit advocacy blogs or talk to people who are in the policy space when they're comparing different sorts of transportation infrastructure that they could adopt. So people have often been thinking about installing bus rapid transit in place of subways because of the substantial cost difference. It's much cheaper to install some sort of bus system. But people talk a lot about the importance of permanent infrastructure to anchor a neighborhood. And I think that that also speaks to the kind of important context of, you know, this is New York City. People aren't putting up single family homes in, in this neighborhood. These are large real estate, large real estate investments that require substantial fixed costs and investments and are risky for developers. And so anything that can guarantee successful development is a boon for real estate. I wonder how this works in reverse. So Chris's point is about the stability of infrastructure investments. And as you talk about in the paper, Arpit, there's also been some reversal, right? So the there was a second avenue L until I believe 1942. There was also a third avenue L, a block over. These were quite extensive and were removed in the 1940s alongside a promise to build a subway, which then took generations to deliver on. And even then only partly, this is just the first stage of the Second Avenue subway. I wonder if you had occasion to go into that and look at what the effects of taking back hard infrastructure investments did to the neighborhood. I think it's a really fascinating question. And in general, I think that a period of American transportation history is really understudied because we know that there was tons of infrastructure, be it streetcars, be it these above ground L's that were being constructed primarily by private entities, right? And this was happening all over the country. And some of these lines were then removed, as you're pointing out, like the second Avenue L was. And so I haven't had the chance to look into real estate data going back that far. But I think it'd be a fascinating question to think about what happened to the neighborhood composition in that area after the removal of those above ground L's. And to speak briefly to Greg's point, I think I think that you're right that this is something to be concerned about. So in antecedent to my work, Leah Brooks and a co-author have this great paper about the persistence of sort of transit-oriented development in Los Angeles and find this really fascinating result that the streetcar locations in Los Angeles in the 1920s and 30s and 40s formed the kind of anchors of these neighborhoods that are still the dense, walkable, kind of commercial restaurant, kind of quality of life centers of these various neighborhoods. And you still see this increased density now, 80 years later. So, Arpit, your paper, I think at its core, a very public finance-oriented message. And so I think it's a good time to turn to the last section of your paper. What do you find in terms of the overall benefits of the Second Avenue subway as capitalized into housing values? And what does that suggest for maybe how we should think about financing these projects? Yeah, so this was really one of our key motivations in trying to understand the project is take the perspective of the city planner and think about, well, what's the best way to finance these kinds of projects that we think have a lot of value, seem to really improve commuting options, these improvements in value seem to be reflected in local prices. And can we think about those increases in value as possibly contributing to the financing mix of these projects? So to study that, we thought we would analyze 
how property taxes work in New York City and first understand the baseline rate at which improvements in value are going to be slowly transferred over into the city budget. So New York City property taxes uh, work in a very complicated way, as I've learned. The basic analysis that we kind of come to is that the project may well have paid for itself through increases in real estate alone. Depends a little bit on the specification, but overall, we find that just the increase in real estate prices was substantial and may have paid for the $4.5 billion construction cost, on top of which there'll be other benefits that are, you know, perhaps not capitalized in the real estate prices just of the neighborhood, perhaps are capitalized in prices elsewhere in the city. However, the city itself is only going to be recouping a fraction of that increase in value, right? Because they're only going to be taking a portion of the improvement in value as property taxes. So we find that about 70% of the gain in the project is really just accruing to local landowners, people who happen to own land in the area and are receiving this windfall gain because of the government public investment in infrastructure that is is benefiting people in the area, but is really adding to an improvement in the real estate valuation of those landlords. And so we really hoped in this project to motivate further discussion of different techniques, value capture techniques, which would be ways for the public sector to try to find ways of financing these projects by internalizing some of those gains and finding ways of taxing those benefits specifically. Yeah, I think you're being a little bit modest about the results. I mean, the the point estimates here are pretty, pretty eye popping, right? That uh, something like $7 billion in real estate value to private landowners as compared with four and a half billion cost of construction. I think based on your analysis, we would say that clearly there are a lot of reasons to have built the second avenue subway. Should we think of it as like the lowest hanging fruit and that this is kind of like an upper bound on other benefits from other projects? Should we think of other projects as having lower benefits than the Second Avenue subway? So it's certainly true that this particular project is serving a very dense part of Manhattan that was not as benefited by other subway lines, right? So there are not going to be that many neighborhoods across the United States where you're going to find this degree of density underserved by public transit. So in that sense, this may have been a one-off project that just has a lot of these benefits. However, if we're able to, one, lower the construction cost of the subway itself so that we stop building subways for 10x the international price of subways, and two, if we find ways of implementing more value capture, of finding ways for the city to recoup more of the purchase price by taking into account these complementarities between the real estate and the land, then I think there are actually many more projects that pass the positive NPV test and become financially feasible. I guess the follow-up question I have is that given the gap in the estimated benefits and versus the costs, why did it take so long to build? And what might that suggest about the size of the frictions and the type of frictions that are preventing more trains? That's a really good question. I think the history of this particular line is in some sense the history of New York City that every time they start building it, you have a war or a depression or something comes along and derails it. And there's always this tension between new capital projects and the ongoing operating budget, right? So I think one 
way of trying to address those political economy concerns is exactly by finding ways to fund the new projects in dedicated income streams that are separate a little bit from the ongoing expenses of maintaining the lines, right? So if we can find ways of dedicating new income streams, and, you know, just to give you some more examples of how that's worked in New York City specifically, we also had this seven-line extension into Hudson Yards and used some value capture techniques such that the local developers were making these pilots, these payments in lieu of taxes to the city, which helped finance the project extension out there, right? We've also had under consideration this DQX, this crosstown busway that also would have had part of its financing mix come from value capture. So to the extent that we can find more of these ways of financing these projects directly from incremental new revenue that could come from upzoning or higher levies or special assessment taxes and so forth, that can, I think, also improve the political economy around these projects. So one of the really interesting things to provide a little context for this too is if this sounds like odder financing mechanisms for people. So when I started studying public transit, I just kind of assumed that governments would provide public transit. But of course, if you look at the history of public transit infrastructure and how it's built, not only in the US, but across the world, there has historically been a lot of private involvement in the construction of these lines. Real estate developers and other people with private interests have been fundamental to the construction of most subway systems and streetcar systems. And it's really only been since in the kind of post-war era that governments have taken the kind of central role of coordinating public transit systems. And that's probably for the good, but it shouldn't be surprising to have some notion of this role for the private sector and from value capture from the private sector to enable public transit. Arpit, it seems to me you've got a couple of issues here baked into the cost question. So one is the magnitude of the cost. So that's part of a larger conversation around the extraordinary cost of public infrastructure in the US, especially compared to some of our peers. Then there's the question of the incidence of the cost, who pays for it. And then the value capture mechanism is devised as a way to address some of the latter and maybe some of the former as well. But on the incidence front, a lot of the money as I understand it, came from the federal government. And so if we're talking about recapturing the benefit, would a locally designed value capture mechanism, whether it's a form of enhanced property taxes or you know, something else, would that be a, a partial solution to the problem or does it fully address it? How do those questions interact? In other words, value capture on the one hand and the varied nature of transit capital expenditures on the other? That's a great question. Basically, all of the MTA's projects are involving federal capital in some way or another. And I think you can have good faith political disagreements about whether that actually should be the case, right? Because ultimately, these are projects that benefit a relatively small group of people, right? They're the commuters are a relatively niche group within New York City itself. Now, they add to these broader agglomeration effects for the city as a whole. And in that sense, you can say that they benefit the entirety of the city and in some sense, the entire country that now has a new option of moving to New York City. But by and large, I would say that the beneficiaries of these projects really are the people that live nearby and take it every day and really benefit from their use. And so I think there is a fairness argument you can make that, well, we want those people who live nearby and take advantage of it 
to also be the ones that ultimately pay for it. And it's complicated, you could say, to do so via fares themselves because you don't want fares to be too high, that, that will dissuade people from using the subway on a regular basis. But to the extent that it has these amenity baked in effects that kind of improve the valuation of properties, I think there are different ways that we could try to take advantage of that, right? And aside from kind of the tax mechanisms that you pointed out, I think there's another very attractive mechanism, which is simply upzoning or auctioning that upzone right in the vicinity of the subway stops, right? So what we're kind of seeing in our example is basically more demand, right, that's happening in the area of the subway stops. And because we're not really building that much more in New York City, that translates as price increases, right? Another way we could have accommodated that is to say, look, we think ex ante there's going to be more demand. And so we're going to allow for taller buildings to be built in the area that could have actually preserved prices at the level they were before, but would have resulted in new construction and we could have taxed or charged that new construction in some way. And that would have also helped fund the project. And that would again, come from locals in the area, people that are benefiting to help support the project. I just want to tie those pieces together. So I think to the extent that it is federally funded, and that upzoning would help fully capture the benefits, we can expect local resistance to defeat that, at least partially. And so that, to me, is a good reason where there is federal funding to attach strings. Because if this benefit is going to be coming from D.C., in order to help realize the full extent of the benefit, it seems appropriate here, as in so many other transportation capital projects, to attach some strings, one of those being an enabling of housing supply to grow to meet the demand of this tremendous investment. The other thing is for capturing, it may be, as you say, that the housing prices stabilize because there's enough new housing, but then presumably there would be enough new land produced, enough new units produced to kick off more property taxes. Plus, you're going to have the income taxes generated by those residents, sales taxes, and other types of revenue. So I think that Arpit and Greg, what you guys were saying about New York is exactly highlights the kind of one of the difficulties that has been associated with transit development in a lot of the US, which is this associated upzoning and how intimately transit is tied to accompanying land use and land use decisions. And of course, land use decisions are often driven by local governments, which can be a, a prime challenge. And so in the Los Angeles case, just because I think it's a kind of great contrast to New York, so Los Angeles passed enabling legislation to fund its metro system in 1980. And then in 1986, there was this big campaign actually called the Not Yet New York program, which passed Proposition U, which specifically limited density. It halved allowable density in most of Los Angeles just a few years before the Los Angeles metro system opened. And so in my research and in other research, notably by Jenny Schutz, uh, who's at Brookings, you see this kind of really almost no effect on building density or on the number of buildings or on land use zoning changes in response to, to this changing. And so this is kind of in contrast to, to the New York case. And even New York is not a super easy environment to build in, right? Absolutely. I don't think we would want the federal government to be building large improvements in a gated community, right? Or in an area that was served by a homeowners association, where that's just going to be a private good for those members, right? We want public taxation to support things that are in the public benefit. And to the extent that taxpayers in Iowa, or Pennsylvania have an interest in funding projects on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, 
it kind of has to be in some sense because they feel that while improving this city will also on some margin of improve their own life prospects that they have a new place to move to that will be better off as a result. So I think it makes a lot of sense to tie somehow these federal improvements for transit projects to something like upzoning, which will increase the possibility and the opportunities for all Americans to be able to take advantage of these projects. I want to push us to think a little bit broader. So in a world where we've got a lot more transit, which is the world that the Upper East Side found itself in after this treatment, that's a world where other land uses may be less valuable, right? The Upper East Side is one of the neighborhoods in New York City that has the highest rate of car ownership, even controlling for wealth and income. And that's to some extent a, tied up with historically weak access to subway transportation, right? And so you have tons of excess road space, lots of avenues that are 100 feet wide, have six, seven lanes, a lot of street parking. And I wonder if a type of value capture that could be pursued would be building housing literally in the street. So if you could think about it historically, right? So 80 years ago on 2nd Avenue, there would have been an elevated line that would be loud and would really preclude any other use of the street except for mobility purposes. Fast forward to, say, 10 years ago, and it's basically a highway that has stoplights. And then now when it has you know heavy rail underneath that transports large numbers of people, and there are adjacent, very wide roads, multiple avenues on either side, it seems like maybe that land could be reallocated. And I understand that there are many political obstacles to this, but can this be thought of as a form of value capture? I think something like that makes a lot of sense. Now, the political barriers are pretty steep here. And I can imagine those coming from, for example, residents of the existing units that don't want their views or something obstructed by like another apartment that's right next to them. But I think broadly, the scope for using parking space in New York City is enormous, right? Park Avenue, which runs along this part of the city as well, used to have a park that ran down the median, right? And I think we can imagine a lot of uses for this land if it's not just being devoted towards parking, often free parking, right? It could be commercial space, for instance, what we're seeing now with COVID is a lot of this sidewalk space, this parking space has been converted to outdoor cafes, outdoor restaurants, and I think that is a much better, higher use of that land than just having a car park there for a period of time. And so there is a lot of stuff we could do there. I mean, I don't know if the best use is residential or if it's more restaurant space or it's more trash bins so that we don't have trash on our sidewalks all over the place. But I think it's a fundamentally important question to think about how best we can use this really scarce resource. Arpit, what do you want readers to take away from your paper? I think it's that there is this huge complementarity between real estate and infrastructure. And we need to just be thinking much more about the ways in which the connectivity and the transportation network that we have underlying our cities impacts real estate value and how we can tap into that value to improve our transportation network ex ante. Thanks for joining us, Harpit, to talk about your paper. One thing that I just wanted to, as a kind of a meta comment, is that I really enjoyed connecting your paper to some of the themes of other papers that we've discussed this fall, like the complementarities between transit and land use, 
history dependence in cities and persistence of land uses and how the design of our political institutions really matters for allocations. So I think putting your paper together with some of the other papers that we discussed so far this year has been a really enjoyable experience. Okay, so the paper is Take the Q Train, Value Capture of Public Infrastructure Projects by our guest R.P. Gupta with Stein Van Neuerberg and Konstantin Kantakosta. All right, now it's the time of our show where we do our appendices. Chris, what's your appendix for this week? My appendix for this week is Trains, Buses, People, an Opinionated Atlas of U.S. Transit. It's written by Krista Spieler, and it's a really great overview of kind of the individual histories of transit systems in the U.S., along with a lot of contextual and institutional detail and history and lots of pictures and maps. And importantly, for those of us who are kind of stats minded, there are a lot of statistics about ridership and the history of these different systems. So it's a really great comparative study in the state of modern transit systems and answers a lot of the questions about how did we get here that you often have when you're looking at transit systems. What was a map that stood out to you? I think looking at the history of the evolution of transit in New York City and Philadelphia are the ones that are most relevant today and stood out to me a lot because you can kind of see the growth, especially of regional rail systems over time and how that's kind of responded to changes in the take-up of the automobile in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. You kind of see the regional rail respond to that. And then you get this whole network view of how regional rail intersects with urban rail, which intersects with bus systems. Sounds pretty awesome. Maybe a future episode, we'll talk about historical developments of comparisons across U.S. cities. That'd be pretty cool. Arpit, what's your appendix for this week? So I've got a book by Elaine Bertaud, Order Without Design, How Markets Shape Cities. And this follows his career, which is really fascinating as an urban planner going all around the world. He helped be an urban planner in Chandigarh, for instance, which is the city I was born in in India, which is a really interesting ordered kind of planned city. And he kind of talks about over the course of his career as a planner, he realized more and more how markets are important and shape urban form and design. And he really articulates kind of a view of cities that these are really series of interconnected markets, right? And talks a lot about how we can use design principles to better structure the markets that make up cities, the labor markets, and so forth, and talks a lot about the consequences of land use decisions, which impair those markets as well. Greg, what's your appendix this week? So this week, I have two appendices. They are both working papers by our guest, Arpa Gupta, that he's co-authored with some different folks. So they both also exploit this mobile phone geolocation data. The first is racial disparities in frontline workers and housing crowding during COVID-19 evidence from geolocation data. And there, along with three co-authors, Arpit talks about how out-of-home activity relating to commuting is associated with COVID cases at the zip code level and with hospitalization at the individual level. And so the analysis is very interesting. One crucial finding of the paper is that household crowding and commuting to essential work are properties that where Black, Hispanic, and lower income workers are overrepresented. So in other words, structural inequality 
rather than density as such is the appropriate uh, independent variable here, I think, to look at in determining the gradient of risk exposure. So that was one great paper. Another one that he's got with Iris Yao and Josh Coven is Urban Flight Seeded the COVID-19 Pandemic Across the United States. And this documents, I think, what had become already a widespread kind of anecdote that had popped up in a lot of reporting, but but they jumped into the data using these using cell phone geolocation and determined that urban residents who fled to other areas, for example, a country house or a Hamptons house, and then sheltered there with other people, that helped spread the pandemic and specifically helped spread it from young, white, and wealthy populations to populations that had more vulnerability. So those are both two very interesting papers that exploit some of the same tools that ARPA exploited for today's paper. Excellent recommendation, Greg. We'll also link to a really nice video that ARPIT produced introducing one of those papers. I'm just curious a little bit about what inspired you to make the video abstract and what your experience was like doing that. Well, I think a lot of us in COVID are missing some of the in-person benefits of things like conferences, chatting with colleagues in the hallway. And so I guess I was just thinking of ways to try to find opportunities to show other people the things I've been working on, things I'm very excited about. And in general, one thing that I've really enjoyed about kind of Econ Twitter and this whole sort of world that's kind of popped up here digitally is the scale and scope of it, right? So if I was ordinarily talking to someone at a conference about this paper, right, that might be one-on-one conversation, or I might present to an audience of, you know, 20, 30 people would be a, a good-sized audience, whereas I can release a video or you can talk about something on a podcast and the scale and scope of how many people that can reach is just so much greater. I love this video abstract that you did, Arpit, and I second everything that you've just said. I'm curious how the video, you know, did that open up sort of new conversations? Do you have a sense of how specifically using a video abstract changed some of the conversations you had afterwards? It's a little hard to identify, I guess, but I've found certainly since COVID that I seem to be chatting with a much broader cross-section of people about my work and about things in general. You might be a good example here, Greg, in that we've, I think, met on Twitter and continued our conversations. And had I continued along a normal disciplinary track, I would primarily be talking to other finance economists, right? And so being able to connect with different people across disciplinary lines has been a really fun part of my experience on kind of Twitter and through this kind of digital world more broadly. Yeah, there's been something interesting in that, like, a lot of these technologies existed before the pandemic, but for whatever reason, norms or comfort or whatever, we were just less likely to take advantage of them to reach out to people. But that's something that would be nice to see as a permanent change as a result of this year. I agree. And I think probably have changed the composition of conferences to some extent as well. Probably does make it easier for folks who would have had a lot of trouble traveling, for example, who now can zoom in. Right. Or people who have kids at home or other responsibilities and find it difficult to do our former in-person activities. I mean, I think this is something I've really tried to kind of appreciate during this pandemic is it's not like the old world we lived in was great for everybody, right? There are a lot of people that 
really did not enjoy coming to the office, did not enjoy having to be on this circuit or being excluded from this circuit of conferences. And there are, I think, a lot of advantages for this new format in terms of inclusion and accessibility. Absolutely. Okay, I have two appendixes this week. The first is related to our fifth paper. It's a paper by Wei Yu, who's an assistant professor, an economist at Peking University. It's called The Economics of Speed, The Electrification of a Streetcar System, and The Decline of Mom and Pop Stores in Boston, 1885 to 1905. This is an article that's forthcoming at American Economic Journal of Applied Economics. So what Wei does in this paper is to examine the effects of the electrification of streetcars in Boston between 1889 and 1896. And he's going to highlight like a particular channel through which transit improvements can affect welfare, right? And so we talked a lot about this different channels and through which that can happen when we were discussing Harper's paper. So streetcars are becoming faster in Boston in the 1890s. And the channel that Wei is going to look at is on firm size. And the idea is here that faster speeds allow certain kinds of firms, specifically retailers and grocery stores, they allow these firms to serve more customers, which allow them to scale up and increase productivity. Way provides compelling evidence that market access matters for scale by this development. I think it's a really nice paper that takes a deep dive in on this one particular margin and does it really well. It echoes earlier research on increases in manufacturing scale in U.S. cities in the 19th century by people like Jeremy Atek and Bob Margo. But again, here we're focusing on, you know, these retail businesses and the effect of like increases in consumer market access as a critical factor in improving welfare. That's Wei Yu, the economics of speed forthcoming in AJ Applied. The second thing I wanted to highlight was this is the time of year where new Econ PhD candidates are on the job market. For many years, Jonathan Dingle, who's an economist at the Booth School of Business at Chicago, has compiled a really nice listing of all of the job market candidates specializing in spatial, urban, or regional economics, kind of broadly defined. It's a really nice public service. And it's a really nice kind of look into like what kinds of questions are the newest PhDs in urban and regional economics interested in studying the days and what kinds of answers are they getting? So I recommend our listeners check that out. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Arpit Gupta, Chris Severin, and Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Powell. Check the show notes for links to the articles discussed on the show. And let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show is at Densely Speaking, and our personal accounts are at arbitrage at chris severin at greg underscore shill and at jeff arlen if you don't already please subscribe to densely speaking wherever you get your podcasts and please take a second to rate and review the show as well it helps other listeners discover our show finally the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the federal Reserve bank of philadelphia the federal reserve system or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated <laughs>